I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, we're going to double up. We're adding a second podcast of the complete Echoes interviews every week. The interviews that we run on the Echoes radio show and on the Echoes podcast are usually tightly produced, heavily edited features. But what you hear is only about seven minutes of interviews that frequently go longer than an hour. But now, in addition to our normal Thursday podcast, we've added a new Tuesday drop. That will have complete Echoes interviews. Some will be older archival conversations with icons like you've already heard with Brian Eno, Klaus Schulze, and Van Gellis. But most will be recent interviews. Today, we'll start with one of those new ones. It's with the electronic artist BT. All of my interviews with him have been a blast. For the last three decades, he's been igniting electronic dance floors with his innovative music. He also has another side that's more experimental, which you can hear in his albums, This Binary Universe, If the Stars Are Eternal, So Are You and I, Underscore, and now, The Language of Trees. BT pretty much defines the term polymath. When we talk about his new album, The Secret Language of Trees, it's not just about music, but embodies nature, technology, literature, and more. Before we get to that, you know, it costs a lot of money to bring you interviews like this, and Echoes and the Echoes podcast are in the midst of our summer fun drive. So if you care about the music we play on Echoes, if you've been enlightened, entertained, and moved by any of our interviews, make a donation now to Echoes. $25 or $50 can go a long way here, and if you can do it, $500 or more can go even further, putting us over the top of our $20,000 goal. Go to echoes.org now. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G, and hit the support echoes tab. Once again, that's at echoes.org. Now, let's get to BT. In June, we talked via the Riverside app. BT was in his home studio in Maryland. So I'm BT, and I'm here today to talk about all things music. We live on agricultural preserve, and when I got my first record deal, you know, many of my friends were, I don't know what they, they did when they got record deals, but it wasn't something smart and involved like buying sneakers, I think. Um, and uh, so the, the career of many a musician, um, I was raised by two academics, so the career of many of musician is similar to the arc of many athletes. And so I wanted to make sure that I had a place to live and work. And so I took my first record advance and I bought a house and I couldn't afford to buy something where I grew up, which is in Rockville, which is not something it's funny. Now it's like a uh, very nice. But when I was a kid, it was, you know, kind of lower middle class to middle class sort of suburbs, but I could not afford uh, something there when I was looking for a house. So I looked further and further out from where I grew up and um, I found a large piece of land, but you know, with like a very old beaten up kind of farmhouse. And that was the house that I bought and I've kept it ever since my first record deal, which is in the early nineties. And built my dream studio in it. So it's thrilling. I like, I've seen the trees grow up in this place. And of course I lived in Los Angeles for years and years, almost a dozen years. And um, we still spend a lot of time there. I love Los Angeles. It will always have a part of my heart, but uh, something about this place and walking in the woods and 
seeing a fox in our garden and, you know, and deers running around the yard. It's like with the way life is certainly during the pandemic. And that's like a thing we can talk a lot about, but it's a very restorative place. And I feel so blessed to get to live here. And we host friends and peers all the time, especially people coming from England or Europe. You know, they'll stop off at our place. Uh, my wife, Lacey, and I say it's like a bed and breakfast here. You know, we're like making pancakes for musicians pretty <laughs> regularly. People stopping off to walk in the woods and visit the studio. So that's a very peaceful place. Okay. You're kind of in the middle of being 51, which from my perspective is very young. How are you feeling about that? Because I'll tell you, like my show... My audience has grown with me. Mm -hmm. There's not a younger audience there. Yeah, I love that so much. I, you know, um, I feel great about it. Honestly, it's it's interesting. It's, I mean, I can take this in a lot of directions, but one of them that's self-evident, or that people that have heard me talk know something that I'm interested in is like. I've always been super duper interested in health and wellness and have been for years and years and years now very dogmatic about working out and yoga um supplementation i mean you're talking to somebody that does like cold plunges four times a week and you know run 15 miles a week so i feel good in my body and yet i have like all of these years of experience and so I couldn't be happier to be at this moment. I actually wish I could freeze it. It feels really good to have like, not kind of the myopic stuff that you have in your twenties, you know, um, but still have the same enthusiasm and ability to do things. So and it feels like a really, a sweet spot. But what about the relationship to your audience now? Has, has that changed? Has your audience changed? Is the audience that you had at 23 when you released your, your debut album, has that changed now in the intervening years? It's such it a great, same people? Yeah, it's such a great question. It's interesting. There have been these very segmented moments where people have kind of entered what my sort of musical catalog. And so it's very interesting. There are my like, you know, super fans, many of them are from, they kind of came in through the first three records. So those are like my super fans. So like they, that came in, um, basically my third record movement is still life was right at the end of the nineties. So it's like people that entered through those first three records are, um, they've seen like the whole thing and they have this like different perspective than younger fans of mine would have, um, you know, for example, you know, fans and peers uh, that I work with in the Web3 space, you know, many of them are quite literally teenagers and into their early 20s, you know, um, both peers and fans this is a totally different group of people that don't have the perspective. And then the funny thing is, is like, sometimes to see those groups of people conversing you know in a, in a place like discord or just like at a show is really interesting kind of the dynamic you know someone that's younger will say we'll hear about something that i worked on years ago and they'll be like what i don't know anything about that and then a fan that's been around for a long time they'll say 
you didn't know that and then they'll rem they'll tell them all about it and remind them of things i don't even really remember like and he also did blah 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 blah, blah and all this and i'm like wow i'd forgotten a bunch of that too so it's really cool uh i like the ability to to communicate with many different groups of people and i feel inspired by people of like all types so it sort of makes sense to have fans that have been around for a long time and fans that are newer you know to some people i'm just two initials and a song that they really like it's pretty broad honestly so um and i love that speaking of those two initials were you pissed off when bts blew up <laughs> 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 only for one reason which is it really sort of messes up search on something like spotify so for no other reason than that i actually like a couple of their songs that's a very funny question john yeah that it, it messed up search a little bit for me so other than that no okay yeah <laughs> that's a great question that's exactly what i was thinking of by the way <laughs> you nailed it yeah absolutely okay so the first piece on the new album the language of trees is the touring test which leads me to ask you so is this an ai album it's such a great question so um it's not and a both and as they would say in in therapy you can always tell you're talking to a therapist's kid um <laughs> it is not an album that is utilizing machine learning however parallel to writing this body of work i've been developing in the software part of my life i've been developing some unbelievable applications that utilize machine learning and generative artificial intelligence and i've been working on those things for the past six years, starting with some what we call MIR algorithms, so things for audio feature set identification, like parsing out sounds into different piles, simply, you know, saying like, if you give something a bunch of sounds, it to be able to tell you these are snare drums and these are cellos and, you know, these are cymbals and these are vocals, right? And so none of these things had I productized, like some of the other software that I'd released, but I've been doing a lot of research in this space and i finally have the first couple applications prepared and ready that are going to come out that utilize machine learning but none of them are used on the record but a lot of the titles are inspired by things that i've been working with in that space from a, like a technology and development perspective like uh what is it the cluster yeah k means clustering <laughs> k yeah. means clustering yeah that's right i looked that one up you know we're entering into such a an unbelievable age uh something that i conceptually felt so you know i think like kind of the modern vernacular for something that feels very futuristic as people say it feels very black mirror you know it's like kind of common vernacular for that so it felt so kind of black mirror the idea that we would be working with at this time things that are able to effectively and intelligently generate things in a creative domain seemed unimaginable to me, even like 15 years ago. And it's crazy too, because I studied generative music when I went to Berkeley. So my professor, Dr. Richard Boulanger, who not so ironically worked with Marvin Minsky, who's considered to be one of the godfathers of artificial intelligence at MIT, at the media labs there at MIT, he taught me all about generative music now that meant something very different when i was a teenager we were looking at 
simple things like taking an array of notes and then randomizing that array or an array of rhythmic values and randomizing that array of rhythmic values and that constituting something compositional, which is like thinking of like kids blocks now compared to the things that we're doing in latent space. But it, it's truly amazing the pace of acceleration, you know, kind of the hockey stick we find ourselves in now. And the next couple of years are gonna, they're, they're really significant for a lot of reasons. And I don't wanna be flippant when I talk about it because they really matter for creative people of all stripes. And I think it's why it's very important for musicians and artists and authors and writers and filmmakers to be informed about what's happening in artificial intelligence so they can help to sculpt and guide it. I think it's really important. So you've worked with generative music. I mean, that's something that kind of goes back to Cage in a way, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> Dockhausen, Zanakis. You know, um, Morton Sabotnik, I studied all of these guys and still do too, by the way, just kind of for the record, like I still routinely, the craziest thing now is some of these guys that are living, like somebody like Chowning or Curtis Rhodes, these are people like I actually have spoken to on more than one occasion, like know who I am, which is the weirdest thing because I'm super fans of their work, you know? John Chowning, obviously, that, you know, invented FM synthesis and Curtis Rhodes, that's considered, if not the pioneer of granular synthesis, cer certainly the first person that actualized it as a, a kind of technique, not a sort of in the ether I idea, you know. And so it's amazing how relevant some of those ideas are that uh, these composers came up with a number of years ago. I mean, some of these ideas go back to the 20s and 30s, you know, to um, Marcel Duchamp and, you know, music concrete and, you know, the art of noise, these kind of, this cut and paste aesthetic. It's like, there's this small kind of area of exploration that I've devoted a tremendous amount of my creative life energy to. And it it's this rich, stream of of uh fruit that it keeps bearing so it's like every time i go back there i find new things it is an exciting thing to explore ah that's interesting i wonder what some of those artists would make of the current thing for instance i've interviewed morton i was gonna say i know him i've interviewed him a couple i interviewed him in the 80s and i interviewed him couple of years ago. Wow. Uh, up in his home in, in New York. And he, he's still doing pretty much what he was doing. I love you know, that. With, with, the, with the Buchla yeah, I, uh, synthesizer. I love it. I mean, his, his work is so seminal and pioneering. And um, as relevant compositionally as when he began, as it is today, it's just amazing. It's easy to talk about in the abstract and then to talk about in a very concrete way. It's like, I think about someone like Ian Zanakis to use a, for example, right. And you, you think, and then Curtis Rhodes by extension, right? Like these two gentlemen are responsible for an entire area of sound design that we hear every single day when we watch a film, when we watch a television, program when we listen to music on the radio we hear these ideas that were so kind of abstract and futuristic 
and are now this commonly accepted part of the musical vernacular, you know, uh, what it means to make modern music. And, and yet, obviously, if I'm talking about Xenakis and Curtis Rudd, I'm talking about granular synthesis and like speaking specifically to that technique, it's just this endless well of ideation. And that's what I mean. It's like every time you go to it, we find these new techniques and these new areas of sound that are truly evocative, but now have uh, this relation you know, this historical relation to things that we're now familiar with. They're not these crazy, like the first time anybody heard distortion on a guitar, like Jimi Hendrix or something. They're not, you know, this wild idea. They're an idea that we're comfortable with, but they can be stretched even farther it is the thing that's so exciting about some of these techniques. And so to this day, I'm inspired by all of these composers work. I mean, you can hear it. I wear my references on my sleeve, so to speak, in what I do. I mean, I'm paying direct homage to to many of these really brave incredible composers hmm. it's interesting when i first started interviewing a lot a lot of these people the the early academic guys Otto Lunin, yeah. uh charles dodge people like that they would do these pieces and the piece would be about a process and that was the piece you know what i mean i They're do like et- etudes right right You're right but then, then I go like the next day and interview like some rock musician, you know, like Peter Gabriel or Larry Fast, you know, who worked on those Gabriel albums. And they were doing the same thing, but it's something that's just like buried in the mix of like, you know, this whole other thing, you know, whereas for these composers, like that was it. You know, it was just out there. Yeah, I love that so much. <laughs> I can't believe you just said Larry Fast. It made me think of Richie Sakamoto too, which is such an incredible uh, loss for our community. We've lost so many incredible composers over the years, but one that really struck me personally. His music was so deeply meaningful to me. You said Larry Fast, because I associate by time period there, but you're, you're right on every level, you're right. And, and, and an interesting one to kind of tease out is this idea that many of the more kind of academic composers, the composition is about the process. Like the, it's like codifying a process is like, the composition like here it is this was my process this is also a piece of music and i love that you mentioned the amazing stuff that larry fast did with peter gabriel and others as well too peter is and who's somebody i've been lucky enough to work with and see his process kind of from the inside out is this deeply emotional poetic uh pr- profoundly nuanced artist's artist, right? Like the artist's artist is someone like Peter Gabriel. And I love that collision of those two sort of strategies for self-expression. One that's like codifying a process and the other that's codifying a feeling. And the intersectionality between those two things is where at least my hope is that my work resides independently inspired by those two groups of people so deeply. And it's where I, you know, zoomed out, you look at somebody like the Beatles, I mean, obviously not comparing myself to the Beatles, uh, but uh, like noting that the Beatles lived in that kind of space in this very profound way where they were writing these songs that were memorable and you know, these feeling states and capturing things that were very of the moment, but they were wildly experimenting at the, in the other hand. So totally different 
to that. But I'd like to think that these experimental works that I make are not just about kind of codifying a process, but are, are also too about capturing a feeling state, an emotional state, and capturing a unique process and the kind of meeting point of those two things. All right. So you mentioned Sakamoto earlier, and I'm assuming Good Evening, Mrs. Loveless, is a tribute to him. It is. It is. And his work just had such a profound influence on me, both as a young composer, through my entire life, honestly, but some of his film composition work in particular was just completely transformative, you know, to my young ears, where I heard him doing things harmonically. Reminds me too of a composer like Debussy, where it's like just painting with tone. You know, it's not like, okay, this is the mode that we're in. Okay, we're doing some interesting modal interchange thing. It's just like this unique kind of ambiguity that he drew from compositionally and specifically harmonically too, where sometimes you would say in listening to a Sakamoto composition, like it very, they're very hard to analyze at times where you're like, I can write this chord progression out several different ways like it can be interpreted different ways because the the uh you know the uh tonic chord doesn't have a third in it so i can't tell you if the composition is major or minor or a major or minor mode and so it has this in the same way that debussy's music is so moving to me it has this kind of emotional ambiguity to it that pokes out a couple different emotions at once at least personally poke at a couple different emotions at once that very few composers do to me. His work was just so incredibly humble and nuanced and melodies are so memorable and what a beautiful artistic life lived, you know? Mm. I wish that I could have met him and just thanked him. Yeah, his music is, to this day, is incredibly meaningful. And I'm surprised you didn't run into him a few times. We had him live on the show twice. Wow. He played live, and I think I interviewed him another time. Maybe another two times. Wow. I think about it. Yeah. 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 Very interesting guy. Uh, he, was, he was very sweet, especially the last time. He was, like, a little different than the first time. Well, that's a really pretty piece, though, on that on the album. Thank you. The language of trees. So, what, what does that title mean? The language of trees. What are you referencing there? So, we live out in nature, in the middle of nowhere here. And one of the things that I think about, obviously, you do as well. It's like a work with technology, and so I find that the polarity of that being nature is such a great head clear out. You know, sitting, working with these machines all day long, whether it's like coding or it's building modular patches or making things with synthesizers or doing digital signal processing in a DAW. I'm just constantly working with computers and synthesizers and mechanical instruments and electronic instruments. And so I like to go outside and be outside. It clears my head out completely, even like a short walk, you know, and I'll often do it a couple times a day, especially when I'm working on something that is really intellectually challenging. So during the process of making this record, I spent a lot of time and it, it this started during the, the pandemic. So this is kind of a cool story to tell. 
I spent a lot more time. We were here constantly, right? And so we were indoors a lot. And to begin with, like everyone else was, we were scared, even though we're in the middle of nowhere. And so I think I probably didn't leave home aside from walking around here, you know, for a period of months and months. And so my wife, who is definitely smarter than I am, said, we need to start like getting out more. Aren't they all? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, we need to start getting out more and kind of like normalizing the experience of that, even if we're just out hiking somewhere where we see people. Right. And so I said, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so we started going on a weekly hike. We went to a place here that's, uh, you know, this beautiful kind of nature preserve and there's a lake and we started hiking around it and we still do it. We do it every Thursday and it's a wonderful thing. You'll probably see 10 people when you're out there hiking over a period of an hour and a half, but it's just nice to see people's faces and to, you know, say hello and stuff and then have these places where you just walk for a mile, right? And you sometimes she and I will walk in silence. Sometimes we'll have these very engaged conversations. And I just started to realize and think about how incredible it is to be in these woods and to watch them change, right? And that if you could imagine that this like, natural environment that we're spending time in and, and being a part of, that in the way that we're there, sharing and communicating and experiencing the space, they too are doing the same thing. Although for something like a tree or some kind of fern or the brush and growth around the trees, they're communicating in different ways, right? So they have these incredible patterns of communication. I've read this or I've watched an incredible TED talk about fungal life, right? And how it's able to communicate between vast distances and like one of the largest organisms on earth is actually under Seattle. It's like a big interconnected network of basically mushrooms, right? And if you step in one point, it's able to communicate with this other part of itself miles away, almost instantaneously. And so I was just really drawn to this idea that there is a language in nature that we have an ability to kind of perceptually understand to some extent, but that's unique to the life forms that are in nature and not to humans. We communicate through, you know, written text, we communicate through music, we communicate through language, and nature has a different communication strategy, modality, right? And so I just became fascinated with this idea of like, what does it sound like, the language of nature? right? What would that sound like? Surely it follows patterns, right? Like our language does, or patterns like our music does, or patterns like our, our written language does. And I started to think about what that would look like and sound like, and it formed a lot of inspiration for the rhythmic figures in this record. So a lot of the rhythmic specifically like isorhythmic and microrhythmic figures in this record are inspired by patterns from the natural world. And without going like too deep nerd, some of these things, I actually started doing things like uh, taking sonograms of plant communication and of microbial life 
communication, which actually communicates in impulse trains, these unusual clicking patterns, as well as things like sonifications of dolphins, of bats, which also too, weirdly, when you start looking at a large corpus of these kind of communication patterns from cicadas to things that live in the sea to plants, they follow similar kind of rhythmic arrangements. And so I started to use some of these things as the basis for sketching rhythmic figures for compositions. And so that's like the most long-winded answer I think I've ever given to anything. I was just going to say, Brian, if this is one of your first interviews for the album, you need to find a shorter answer for You're that question. You're so right <laughs> about that. There's no question. But that's, that's, the, that's the truth of it is like it's really inspired by it's inspired by this kind of latent language of nature uh, that I started to look at actually mathematically and try to pull some things out to use rhythmically. So give me an example of that on the album. Sure. For example, there's an interesting kind of double entendre too, because it involves a lot of field recordings. So not only am I taking a look at these rhythmic patterns, right? Deep fake is a very good example of this. So the rhythmic figures in deep fake have these very strange clicky microrhythmic figures that are actually impulse trains that are the kind of glottal vocalizations pattern, not the sound, the pattern from a dolphin, from a bottlenose dolphin. So I took them and looked at sonograms like FFTs and took and turned those into MIDI and then took that MIDI information and used it to program these clicky impulse trains. So I, I like some of these things you wonder like, I wonder what would happen if I was diving and I was able to play this rhythm to a dolphin, if I'd be like, you know, flipping it off or it would be like, I love you too. Like you have no idea for it would just be like, that's nonsense. You know what I mean? But um, the, uh, the rhythmic patterns in that are actually from these sonograms I mentioned. So it's, it's interesting because there's really two things here in this record. One is it's, this started with, being in the studio in Singapore after I had a show and these wonderful hosts there in Singapore said, we'd love to invite you to our studio. I had nothing to record and they said, just come in. We have a beautiful Bosendorfer grand piano and um, we mic'd it up and I spent six hours in there and I just played piano for six hours and it formed four large pieces of music that became basically this whole album. And so there's that part of it, this very organic piano composition part of it. And then the other part is this crazy academic, super, you know, like intellectual introspective part of it, which was using modular synthesizers, programming, studying these patterns, rhythmic patterns from uh, you know, everything, literally from cicada calls to microbial life communication and turning them into rhythms. And instead of taking these piano compositions and superimposing them on this other part, I did the inverse. And so it was really fun. I gave the record to Howard Jones, who's a hero of mine, a synth hero of mine. And he wrote me a text and it was so lovely what he said, but he listened to Berlin and he was like, that's one of the most beautiful pieces of music that he said I'd ever written. And he said, the reason why is because it breathes. And he's like, it's not this static kind of sequence music. He's like, 
I can hear you playing the piano and trying to figure out where you're going next. And he was asking, he's like, I don't understand how all the electronics are following it as opposed to, he's like, did you play that to the electronics? And I said, no, it's the inverse. So I spent weeks on each of them conforming these electronic performances to the piano and not kind of tainting the original piano performances. So it was kind of done in the inverse. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about uh, a lot of those songs, actually. Um, for Berlin, for one. Yeah, that one, that one, it's a really melancholy song on the album. And it actually gets almost depressive once the drums drop out. I agree with you. That part is, it feels very kind of heavily introspective you know, like reflective, the end of that piece. And I don't know where some of them came from. Honestly, John, it's like normally a piece like Berlin, I would have probably separated into two or three pieces of music, but it just felt so appropriate. And at the point where I'm at in my life and, you know, where I find myself compositionally, I'm like, you know what? This is the music that I write. It's not for everyone, but the people that it speaks to, I can see because I hear from them that it really, really speaks to them. Hmm. Is, is any music for everyone anymore? Um, so I actually had a question about why there's so much piano on the album. I guess you just explained that one. Yeah, yeah, it was this, this wild thing of just being, you know, I had this great show in Singapore and the host said, would you, would you like to come to, we've just finished this beautiful new studio. I mean, literally the paint had just dried in this place. They hadn't recorded anything there. And so they have the beautiful Bosendorfer with the extra octave on the end. You know, the, you never see this piano. It's so rare. It had just been freshly tuned and we put up mics on it. And I just recorded for about six hours straight, just piece after piece after piece. And there's very little editing in these. I just literally grabbed these large sections out of them and then composed electronic things to accompany them. So getting back to Deep Fake, which is, again, another title referencing our technological situation these days. Mm -hmm. Is that glissando guitar on there? Yeah, what a great question. You, nothing gets lost on you. It's an oud, like a, a guitar, but it has no frets. I was lent it by my friend Richard Fortis. He plays guitar for Guns N' Roses. Actually, Richard and I recorded an album that we haven't finished yet. That's beautiful, absolutely beautiful record. We recorded it. We rented a like a 200 year old church this was like late into the pandemic and we went there and set up literally a hundred speakers in in an old church recorded there anyway richard had this oud i was just fascinated by that instrument and i, I don't have one I, I don't even know i'd know where to get one and i asked him if i could borrow it and he, he lent it to me and i i used that in that track in deep fake and it's such an unusual instrument to get around on because you know, similar to something like a cello or a viola, you know, the, you don't have frets to kind of bar off the points to make a perfect chord. If you're playing something monophonic, it's different because you're just kind of pitch bending around. But playing any kind of chords on it is like you have to be a virtuoso. So there's definitely some editing in my oud part, but that is the, that instrument on there. So it's not a nude like the Middle Eastern oud, is it? It is. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. And interestingly, Richard's doesn't look like one of these traditional ouds. It's like kind of looks like it. The fretboard is the same, but the body of it is not quite the same. And it has a pickup on it as well, too. 
but it's an incredible sounding instrument. It, it holds processing really well, but it's so hard to play. <laughs> so there's a vocal sample on Time Moves So Fast. Again, another reference to our time. It reminded me of Adi Amos. Do you remember that? I do. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely remember. So where is that voice from? So that voice is actually a voice that I created using a type of synthesis technique in C-Sound, believe it or not, that is called FOF synthesis. So FOF synthesis is a type of granular synthesis that is emulating the human glottal train, impulse train. And when you use it in combination with convolution, so just like normal impulse response, you can make something that sounds compellingly like a human. So, yeah. Miriam Stockley is going to be very disappointed when she hears about this. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I love it. It it does sound, it sounds like her. It definitely sounds like her. So can you imagine, so you, you play, you play a lot of instruments, you play guitars and stuff, but can you imagine that being your artistic voice in this time and in this culture that you're in? The playing of uh, an acoustic instrument, is that, the, is that the question? Yeah. Could you imagine that being your primary artistic voice, you know, in the culture that you're living in? That's a great question. I mean, my hero, hero composers as a kid going way back were taking acoustic instruments and trying their damnedest to make wild, exotic new sounds from like you know overblowing french horns to like moving the string orchestra out into you know uh different you know alternate seating arrangements to you know dropping bows in like uh these unusual string articulations they were trying so hard to make sounds other than what would come out of an organic instrument and so I guess my answer, it's a roundabout way of saying maybe, but if I was just using an acoustic instrument to self-express, I would definitely be like playing it with forks and lighting it on fire and all kinds of wild stuff, you know what I mean? Looking for new kind of timbres and, and tones that are possible within acoustic instruments, which honestly, some of the coolest stuff to this day is looking for new ways to treat acoustic instruments is some of the most compelling sonic material that I come up with, not coming from electronics, but coming from treated acoustic instruments. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I want to go to um, your notes for The Lost Art of Longing, which was also a really good album, by the way. Oh, thank you. I'm going to read them back to you. So, if anything positive is to come from the situation the world collectively finds itself in, it is my great hope Speed, instant gratification, and overstimulation are swapped out for longing, imagination, and relational connection. That's nicely said. I like how I wrote that. It's nicely said, but I'm wondering if you're actually on the flip side of that sentiment in terms of creating a lot of the music that you create that's you know very dynamic, very uh, you know, fist in the air <laughs> kind of stuff. No, it's a great it's a great question. I think that this wildly experimental stuff is really leaning in to the opposite of 
the deficit of attention culture that we find ourselves in so much now swipe culture and just things or you're bored of them before you even see them or hear them and i mean there's the producer cuts of this record we, we ended up calling them which is by the way the actual record it's i was, I was gonna ask you about that yeah, yeah the, it's the actual <laughs> album and i mean it's what will go on the vinyl and i i actually love doing these edits that we do now for things like spotify but they're meant to be ingested in this very kind of morsel sized thing. And the way that I look at, I used to think of them as like this horrific thing, like, oh, we have to cut down these songs that mean so much to me and have thrown out so much work. I see them differently now. I see them as an inductor for people to kind of discover something that they might not discover otherwise. So it's like, if you're cutting something out of this big newspaper and just sharing one little piece with someone and they think it's interesting, they might want to come read the whole newspaper. They're meant to be listened to and enjoyed with people that you love or enjoyed alone to inspire people. They're not fist in the air things that I would play at a festival. They're for introspection or for a group of friends to listen to together. They're long. They're very detailed the details lost if you're like doing a hundred things, you know, and listening to them. So they really are in opposition to a lot of the things that we find ourselves in, in culturally. And, and my hope is just what I wrote there, that they, they give people an excuse to slow down and just enjoy something. Hmm. So I think you should have done those liner notes for this album. You're probably <laughs> right. Because the line's pretty... You know, those are kind of like really great electronica tracks, but they are kind of electronica pop tracks. Good feedback. <laughs> nice to know. Thanks. Yeah, a little late, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're getting into NFTs. Yeah, we've done a bunch of them now, and uh, we moved into that space very, very early. And Of course you did, because that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, it's a thrilling, thrilling thing. It's funny because outside of it, friends and peers of mine don't really understand fundamentally what there is to be excited about there. And what really drew me to it and immediately captured my attention is... So pre-pandemic, late 2018 it would be, is a friend of mine, Justin Blau, who's an electronic artist, is a DJ. He said to me, you need to look at this. And the reason why is because this is a way to take something digital and to make it for one person. And I didn't understand what he meant when he first said it. And then so my first like look over some of these things were very, very early days, like post crypto kitties, but like, you know, crypto punk sort of time, like these pixelated JPEGs. Right. And I couldn't wrap my head around what was special about this. And when it clicked for me, I could make a piece of software and I could give it to one person. So as opposed to a one to many where I make a piece of software, for other people, for example, to make music with or to do stutter editing with. And we sell that piece of music software and it goes on to many people's computers and they all use it and they enjoy it and they use it in their own work. When it clicked for me, I can make one piece of software and it's a piece of art. And I can share that with a single person. So one person can own it, 
but everybody else can see it and enjoy it, but only one person can provably own the tokenized hash of that body of code, my brain exploded. It's still exploding. It does not seem very egalitarian of you. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, yeah, it's, it's so exciting though, John. It's like, so for example, the first thing that I did, the first blockchain uh, work that I did, <laughs> you're right about that. It's not very egalitarian. And so like zoomed out, I think in what other format could I make a piece of art or music like this? I made something called genesis.json. These uh, JSON files were used as kind of repositories to hold a piece of music and art that is, you can go see right now, that is 24 hours of changing music and art. And it changes over time, wherever you are in the world. If you open it right now in Hong Kong, you'll see a different part than if you open it in Washington, DC which is like a feat too, but based on the fact that the blockchain, specifically the Ethereum mainnet is time agnostic. This piece is owned by a single art collector uh, named Pransky. And he's like an art collector. Like he owns Matisse hand sketches. He's not like just someone that collects digital art. He's an actual art collector. And he collected this piece and I hear from him every now and again. And he just tells me, you know, that, it's thrilling for him to have this and he has it on a monitor uh, in his home and he loves it and it's his. And it's like the coolest thing. I spent a year of my life making this thing and one person owns it. And like, it's just a thrilling thing. It's something that has captivated me since I first started to really understand what it is. Mm. Well, I'm still not sure I understand it, but uh, someone who I think is just as smart as you, Brian Eno, yeah. really, really hates them. He does hate them. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've uh, seen, I've seen a lot of Brian Eno's comments on actually uh, Brian Eno's comments on specifically on NFTs for someone that is so progressive and so remarkably future thinking. I have studied Brian Eno's work literally since I was a teenager. His card system I've used before you know, his work inspires me to this day. I mean, like, is he's an incredible, incredible mind. I would love to sit down with Brian Eno and explain to him what is so special about this technology. I think like many other people, he may at a point regret some of the things that he said about NFTs in some ways, because it was kind of hand wavy and dismissive. Like the idea of ownership of a digital asset especially as like we go into, you know, Apple announcing their headset, what this means for things like that to, to like Gen Z, this totally makes sense because they're used to buying digital assets in Roblox. It is a unique thing that they own. That's the same as I own this mouse or the bowl here, right? Um, it's just virtual, but they have actual ownership of this as an asset and not as something as silly as a jpeg either that that really is a proof of concept to showcase what is possible and so i have the utmost admiration and respect for brian Eno still to this day and um maybe he'll hear this and i would love to sit with him and talk to him about what's so special about blockchain and web3 technology and why it's important for us to utilize and harness as musicians um, and the generations after us as well, too. 
Well, you, you and Brian Eno are definitely two people who should get together and not just about NFTs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I heard his new record is amazing. I'm dying to hear it. Uh, the, the vocal one? Yes, I heard it's great. You mentioned the this, this stream of albums that began with the binary universe. So this sounds of a piece with the other ones. So I'm wondering what has changed in, the, in this interim, which is now getting close to 20 years. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. amazing. It's that long. And you know, this record really feels like a return to some of the the very first kind of melodic and harmonic structures of that first this binary universe. You know, these projects I've let myself wildly experiment. It's like whatever feelings it is trying to capture, whatever as you said kind of process I'm trying to codify I've just let those things happen and not self curated that much, you know? Uh, I mean, there's some wild experimentation on some of these records that I listen back to now and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I forget. Lacey was listening to Underscore in the car the other day and uh, she pulled up in front of the house and she'll sometimes sit in, in front of the house and just listen to a piece of music. And I heard, a piece of music and I was like that sounds interesting I'm hearing it like through our house and through the car so I walked outside and I was like hey honey and she's like get in and I got in and she was listening to Indivism from Underscore and I was like this is a wild piece of music I I don't know that I'd listened to it since I, I wrote it but something like that is this wild diversion from some of those original harmonic and melodic ideas from the first of this binary universe and I'd heard a lot from many many people how significant and special that record was to them and i thought it's why these piano compositions ended up becoming the basis for so much of this it's like i found these part of these piano compositions and wrote some new things as well too it had that kind of very childlike primitive sort of melodic and harmonic feeling to them that just it's very sort of lullaby-like, some of the ideas, not the crazy harmonic stuff, but the simpler ones. And so I think it's kind of a bookend. Well, Brian, it's been a blast. I think we could go on for a long time. It's so nice to see you, John. We got to do this more than every 20 years. Can we no. please? <laughs> got to do it sooner than that. <laughs> Take care, man. I will have a link to BT's A Secret Language of Trees in the posting for this podcast at echoes.org. On our Thursday podcast, I'll have our feature with pianist and really multi-instrumentalist and multi-genre musician, Nathan Spear. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want. <laughs>